It's Monday, March 27th, and we have Bill Cavender from Blackheath Meadery. Scott, welcome to Eat It, Virginia. Hello and welcome to Eat It, Virginia, your number one podcast source for food, news, and interviews with the people who make Virginia restaurants great. Follow us on social media at Eat It, Virginia. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. My name is Scott Wise, and I am joined, as always, by my friend, my friend, Roby Martin. Roby, I'm sitting on a throne with a big turkey leg in one hand and a goblet of mead in the other. I don't really, I don't think I understand this reference. Do you see, like, a picture in your head? I know it's the nectar of the gods. I just described the picture in my head. I know, but I don't understand where that's from. I have much bigger muscles. Okay. And I'm like wearing like a toga or like a Loin, well, I forget. I'm it's gonna, not a loin let's, cloth. Let's move, let's <laughs> I move think, right I along. Think, I think it's a good. Yeah, I think we I think lost our listener. Guy. I think it, yeah, the, the one we have, I think, is gone. Well, anyway, Mead, how do you feel about it now? I feel much better about it. Thank you for inviting Bill onto the podcast because I learned so much about this drink that honestly seemed intimidating to me. Something I wouldn't even want to try if offered. I like that you asked the question if it's like a heavy, viscous something or other. Because I think that goes through a lot of people's heads. It's gone through mine. I just was a bit too big of a wuss to ask the question. Well, and I've had his mead, so I know that it's not. But His award-winning mead, you, we talked about it in the interview, which is coming up in just a couple of minutes. He won multiple awards at the... Seven, two golds. It's incredible. Incredible. I have something for you. How about this new Richmond water? Explain to me what new Richmond water is. Well, it's... I mean, water, obviously, is not oh. new. <laughs> but... um. We have a new Richmond water made from local water, or is local water? How can it be made from? Anyway, what are your thoughts? What goes into this water, exactly? This water, H2O. So Roby's talking about this new product that's about to hit the market, um, which we are not, this is not a sponsorship hog. This is just a discussion no, about No, 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 this. no. No sponsorship here. This is just a discussion. The company the dropped Richmond off water. some, sam- some they, samples for they us. They dropped off some water samples <laughs> yes. for us. And, and we're really trying to, to have a fun with this because Scott has questions, which I get. Um, but Well, Roby <clears throat> sent me a note and said, um, this company is dropping off some, some water. We should talk about it on the podcast. And so I tasted it. And, and I said, it tastes like water. water. <laughs> and she's like, well, well okay, well, there we go. Um, but but it is just water. <laughs> it, is, it is just water. Um, the gentleman who dropped it off, I believe his name was Will, uh, explained to me a little bit of the backstory. Um, and basically, it is just water. It is filtered and triple. He, you know, he, he, All the things he gave that me you the spiel. If you bought bottled water. The cool thing, and I will say this, the cool thing about it is the packaging. It's an aluminum bottle with local artists work on yes. it so i could see that hamilton glass is part of this one and then you have noah scalen who does really great design and then some local branding and did he tell you it was going to change he told me it's good yes so the the label on there now i mean i looked at it and i knew immediately it was hamilton glasses work just because obviously he's one of the more famous artists in town with the murals and he does a lot of great work around town and around the world and uh will said that yes they're going to be a ro- it's going to be a rotating list of, of artists who are going to make these labels which are really pretty i brought it home with me oh so the idea is you know kind of to do doing away with plastic bottles because a lot of us drink water out of plastic bottles and this is a reusable you know situation my daughter 16 years old said she loved the look and she loved the idea so you know, what do I know? There I guess it is. I guess it's, it's a better it's, question. It's, it's water. It, it tastes like water, guys, which is what Scott told me. <laughs> Come here for the hard-hitting analysis of your local <laughs> eats your local and drinks. H2O. <laughs> Speaking of uh, local analysis, today, what looks like a review of Odyssey Uh-oh. came out in the TD. Do we want to go here now? You said you said you didn't have much time to record this podcast. I don't, have, I don't but I just want to talk to you. It's, they've been open for four days. Yes. And there's Megan Markoniak has written about them. With Our good several, friend. Yeah, we love Megan. The review is incredibly positive. I mean, and it should be because all of them are amazing. But what do we think about the timing? Four days is not a lot of time to, to get your shit together. There you go. That's what I think too. But I am happy that it wasn't a, you know... 
I didn't read it yet. So it's a review or it's a, hey, this place is open and here's what I ate. It is perspective on food with the words, this was good, this tastes like this, this was also good. <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> yep. I mean, if you're going to say something is good, what is the opposite of that? Bad. Saying something is bad. Yes. Right? Yes. And then therefore you have a review. Got it. There it is. Coming up with Bill in the Blackheath Meadery, we learn wow. about two of Roby's obsessions. <laughs> we do. <laughs> well, here's something cool, Scott. Have you heard of, I'm going to call it honey wine. I call it mead. You're going to call it mead? Sure. I picture I like a it. king on his on his throne with like a big piece of meat in one hand and a goblet of mead in the other. That's what I picture. That's what you picture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I picture like good for the environment, like good for you. That that could all be true as well. I just picture the guy. We have the the expert here, Bill Cavender from Blackheath. So why don't you tell us what you pictured before you started this? Well, thank you. I think those are both fair representations of (laughs) what it is that we do. Um, and it certainly reflects also on some of the challenges that we have about what we do. But to just start off, uh, we started making mead here in Richmond, Virginia about eight years ago. In fact, uh, pretty good timing. It is just about eight years to the day. Uh, just about a week ago was our eight-year anniversary. So uh, we're celebrating that anniversary this weekend, but it's been a, been a heck of a journey. We kicked off kind of on the tail end of the cider boom, as I call it. We saw craft beer really doing its thing in Richmond. We saw cider kind of filling a niche, and we said, hey, let's bring mead, a.k.a. honey wine, a.k.a. the nectar of the gods, into the mix. And uh, through a little bit of market research and some small startup uh, with our RVA Mead Lab, we felt like the time was right. So in 2015, we went ahead and uh, got a little funding behind us. Found a cute little neighborhood called Scott's Edition, and we're fortunate <laughs> enough to get our, our, our foothold in there, and that was the beginning of it. So, yeah, eight years later, wow. You guys, you started in Scott's Edition and stayed in Scott's Edition. You were like some of the first people in Scott's Edition. We really. were, and I would love to tell you that I thought and knew that it was going to be <laughs> booming the way it is now, but uh, thanks to a good agent who had feet on the ground, knew kind of some things were going on in Scott's Edition was able to secure us a nice little spot uh, just under 2,000 square feet. So for us, it was kind of an ideal way to get started. Uh, It wasn't crazy expensive yet. It was touted to be the new place. We were excited. So yes, we moved in there. And while we have grown and moved our production out of Scott's Edition, that is still our primary location as far as our tasting room. I'm curious what you thought Scott's Edition was going to be when you signed that lease. What What were you envisioning? Well, I mean, I have been around Richmond for quite a long time. Uh, I moved to Richmond in 1985 to attend U of R out in the West End. And at that point, I really didn't do much downtown, discovered the fan, knew the fan was fun, and actually had a couple (laughs) friends from VCU living in Scott's Edition back in the late 80s. And it was essentially then it was lofts in old warehouses. Uh, It was fairly sketchy, um, but it was cool for artists because you could get a big space and kind of do what you wanted. So that's kind of what I remembered. In the late 80s, there were loft apartments in Scott's Edition? There were essentially large 10, 8 to 10,000 square foot you know, empty warehouses where people were living on like the second floor and then had kind of used whether it was tapestries or maybe a little bit of drywall to create some different private spaces. But yeah, that was going on in the 80s in Scott's edition. So I did not know that. I thought that every everything had been converted from like the industrial back your truck up, you know, to get the lumber, 86, whatever lumber. Um, I had no idea that there was actual living spaces other than like the three actual houses i believe that are in scott's yeah, the edition row houses where they were i think those were built to house folks that were working at some of the larger industrial folks or uh, businesses the dairy being one of those i think the coca-cola which is now the preserve so but yeah so i don't know if these were like officially leased sanctioned. as yes yeah, yeah, by no, the city but yeah nobody would t- be able to tell you now so i love yeah, it that exactly. <laughs> i feel like that's like that's the story there right there's like a, a neighborhood that is past its prime the artists move in they make it cool again and then they get priced out that's pretty Absolutely. much how it works so that's kind of where we so when we came in we weren't really sure what to expect um we knew that there were some other folks making alcohol there. Isley had opened. Ardent was in the process of opening. Um, and just the location, it, it still to this day shocks me that it took so long because 
it's literally a stone's throw from the highway. It's right down from the fan. It's so accessible um, off the bus line. So uh, those folks that got in early, us being one of them, um, are hopefully going to continue to take advantage of where we are, although it is changing a lot. Um, and it's getting much more densely packed, expensive. Uh, the roads have taken a toll from a lot of the construction. Um, but it's still a great destination. We still get a lot of foot traffic. And as a fairly niche business, uh, either people are coming to find Blackheath Miri because they know about us, and that's fortunately about two-thirds of who comes in. But the other third literally are walking through Scott's Edition because they know it's a great area for food and drink. They see our sign. They look in the window, hopefully find something interesting, and wind up coming in to check us out. So, so before – I'm sure you did, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Before you got into mead, did you drink a lot of it? So mead as a beverage has always been, well, always in my life, um, mead has never been something that was widely commercially available. And that's one of the reasons that I actually got into making it. Um, growing up, uh, Chicago is kind of a big city for lots of Eastern European immigrants, particularly Poles, Ukrainians, Russians, um, you know, Baltic, the Baltic states. Um, and my grandmother was from Chicago. So mead, there were people in my family that made mead. There were folks from Poland that made it at home. Unfortunately, when a lot of those immigrants arrived in the United States, the earlier beverages, the beer, the grape wines, and the ciders and spirits had kind of taken over. Uh, I think a lot of those Poles and Russians and Lithuanians that came in the early 1900s, that when they arrived, there were other things to drink. So mead was more of kind of something that people made at home for their own consumption, for weddings, for, you know, all the important life events. Um, and it never really took off commercially. So um, in my mid-20s, as a avid home brewer in a climate in Austin, Texas, it was a little n unfriendly for, you know, fermenting beers. I didn't have anything fancy, um, so a lot of the fermentations were too warm. So I was looking around, and I knew mead was this kind of archaic, weird beverage that people used to drink a lot of, and it was made out of honey. I had some friends that were beekeepers and reached out to them. And who doesn't have yeah. friends who are beekeepers? Everyone. I mean, everyone does. I, I mean, totally I, 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 I know. Don't, how this many an, do you have? This is in Austin? This is Austin, Austin <laughs> Texas, back when Austin was still very weird. Yeah. yeah. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> well, I mean, to the, to the beekeeping um, – Fortunately, we are at a point in history now where we are seeing a lot more people pick up beekeeping. Uh, beekeeping, I guess, is kind of like craft beer. I mean, 20 or 30 years ago, there wasn't really a whole lot of it. Um, but there are lots of folks that are aware of the plight of the honeybee, the fact that honeybees are really struggling due to a number of factors and have kind of picked up the hobby. Uh, the home uh, the home bee clubs, like kind of like the home brew clubs, the beekeeping clubs in Richmond and surrounding uh, counties are really booming. Lots of new beekeepers, typically with one or two hives at home, but people are learning more about bees and their role in the ecosystem, how important they are, and of course the benefit of having honey. Whether you want to make meat out of it or not, it's nice to have your own honey. So... You use a lot of local honey. Yeah, I know this about you, but walk me through the process on making mead. So starting with your local Absolutely. Honey. So uh, short honey note. Uh, honey is a strange business. Honey comes from all over the world, and a lot of large um, honey packers get honey from all over the place. And what's in that honey is, is always somewhat questionable. Um, there has been a lot of really? adulterated honey. There have been a lot of good What um, do you adulterate articles. honey with? Well, typically it's some sort of non-honey sugar. So it would be white sugar, processed sugar. It could be even corn syrup, which, oh, woe is me when you are going to put something so chemical, so, something that's you know so non-natural processed. processed into honey. Um, and it happens quite often. So one of the things we were keen on doing early on was knowing where our honey comes from. Um, we also re were required by Virginia ABC as a farm winery, an urban farm winery, to produce a certain percentage of our fermentables. So we, early on, were like, we need to have our bees. So I have a partner who essentially co-locates Blackheath's hives with his hives. Um, we started that, gosh, it's been six years ago now. And so we are thrilled that we have now seven bee yards around the state. Uh, we have one sweet little hive in the alley next to Blackheath Meadery, thanks to the former governors, uh, 
I, when they were put the beehives on the roof, uh, they had a swarm, and we were able to go down and capture that, and that's been a really nice hive for us, kind of for people to look at. Um, so yes, we've established hives around the Commonwealth, so I know where that honey is coming from. Very cool. How many bees would you say you own? <laughs> well, Total going number into the winter, bees. we always have more than we do coming out. That's one of the unfortunate things about keeping bees now. It's it's become more difficult. Uh, so we could do quick math, and let's say if we currently have 60 hives, middle of summer when the hive is at its fullest, which is going to be 60,000 bees. So somebody pull out a calculator Got and it. do 60,000 times 60. Um, I would say that as 3. our... 3.6? Yeah. Roby Martin. Yeah, look, look at that man. Awesome. That's pretty quick. Two deadheads over here trying to like calculate and Roby's like, right. boom, 3.6. 3.6 million. I get excited about yes. bees. It's a lot of bees. So a lot it's of a bees. lot of livestock. I would I'm say maybe I've never met anybody with... livestock owners in the You are. Three point, whoa, 3.6 million bees. 3.6 million you... bees to produce, hopefully in a good year, about 60 pounds per hive. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so each hive like really produces that much that's honey? typically in virginia what we would get out of a good year when we're getting the right you know rain levels um not too hot not too dry um so 60 times 60 3600 yep 3600 right? 3, pounds of honey so she's like rain man over here i'm so i'm super <laughs> impressed with her don't be that impressed <laughs> it's just easy math what was the weather like on may 2nd 1979 uh, i was promised there would be no math <laughs> it was 57 degrees okay. um anyway so, so that honey is all going to be processed by us um it gets packaged typically into 60 pound um pails that's five gallons of honey pretty heavy but those get moved to our production facility and the first thing we need to do in order to get that stuff to ferment is we need to dilute it um, honey in its natural state as you probably know it's really a, a really like fascinating product it doesn't spoil mainly because of that low moisture content also because because some of the enzymatic activity that happens when the bees produce the honey now is that how you might know that your honey has been adulterated if it starts to not smell or so like one of the things that a lot of people will say about honey is almost all honey that is natural will crystallize over time. So if it doesn't crystallize, that typically means that it's been ultra filtered. And one of the reasons people ultra filter honey is to disguise where it's from. Because if you look at honey under a microscope, you can see the pollen and pollen is a signature, right? If you see pollen from China, but, you know, from a tree or a pollen producer in China that doesn't exist in Virginia or Pennsylvania where the honey is supposed to be, that would be an indication that there's something wrong with that honey. Sure. So they will, they will ultra filter that so there's absolutely nothing left in it. I'm getting paranoid about my honey now. Yeah. I have to go home and get, bust out the that, microscope. I, I buy from people I know. I, I mean, don't. I don't know them personally, but I actually have to, I'm something you may not know about me scott but i really love local honey it's like one of my favorite things so i have a lot of it i'll take a picture and send it to you i have lots of honey like virginia beach honey i have hampton roads honey i have richmond i'm not siber do you have a problem do it. Have, oh, yeah. um, are you is, are we talking about I'm like a, are, are you confessing like an addiction to local you, honey it's amazing what you can do for you it's like everything if i feel sick shove some honey in my face if i feel like a zit coming on Honey. Shove some honey in your face. Yeah, I mean, like, it's like, I, seriously, it's like, it's wonderful. And I drink a lot of tea. So, yeah. gosh, dog, I'm sorry. Honey guys. is actually one of the world's oldest medicines. Uh, honey has been used as a medicine, you know, back the Egyptians were using it for poultices and for, you know, you have a burn, you have a cut. Honey is really antibacterial, antifungal. So, sorry, guys. so it's been used for a long, long time, um, as well as for the internal benefits, um, you know, the, the, the story has been for a long time that consuming locally sourced honey can help the body create natural immunity to allergies. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you're allergic to ragweed and the bees are collecting ragweed pollen and it's in the honey and you're eating that, you're having it at a small level, almost like a vaccine, right? It's you're getting a small level of whatever's bad for you to allow your body to build up some immunity. Um, to me, the amount of pollen in honey is fairly low, but you can also buy local pollen. So, so how many glasses of your mead must I drink so I don't have allergies allergies anymore? I think that would be an interesting study. Yeah, we'll get started on that as soon as this weekend. Actually, you know, we, we can figure that out. So, we yeah, can, you, he can, you can start building up a tolerance between your mead and Roby's math. We can get this figured out <laughs> pretty quickly. Amazing. Sounds good to me. So um, we're at diluting the honey. Yeah. So of course we needed to dilute it because I could fill up a tank with honey and just throw some yeast 
yeast in there and essentially nothing would happen. So we typically dilute three pounds of honey per gallon of water. Um, and once it's diluted, it's ready. So then we add our yeast. And essentially it's as straightforward as that. That is a traditional mead. It's a it's basically fermented honey water. Um, after the primary fermentation is done, that's when we would typically add things like fruits and spices and herbs and other things. But typically we will start a 400-gallon batch of mead. It's 320 gallons of water with 80 gallons of honey. So 80 times six, 80 times. Here we go again. Jeez. Here we yeah, go. 80 times five, 400 pounds. Four, I don't know. Yep, there it is. Yep, he's right. 400 She confirmed LBs. it for you. Yeah, so... A lot of honey, a lot of water. Um, we mix that up. Uh, we have large industrial tanks and uh, equipment, much like you would see in a brewery. So we essentially are recirculating honey and water just to get it evenly mixed. And then we're adding yeast to it. We're contro controlling the temperature, much like you would see in a brewery. Um, and we're letting it do its thing. So usually within about two weeks, that yeast is able to consume all that sugar. And we're left with about a 12.5% alcohol mead. At that point, uh, we would typically treat it to uh, prevent any refermentation, and then we would add a little bit of honey back to it because it's bone dry at that point, and we like our traditional meats to have a little bit of honey sweetness. Very cool. And so if you're doing – what does that make bottle-wise for you? Like one batch that you so brewed. So a 400-gallon batch of mead – we typically lose a little bit through the process because some of the stuff is settling out to the bottom and it's spent yeast. Uh, it's like things that we don't want. So we rack off of that. So we typically wind up with about 380 gallons and we get 100 bottles uh, per 10 gallons of 375s or half that amount for 750s. So let's just do 400 because it's easier for me. 400 gallons would be 2,750 ml bottles. So a fair amount of bottles. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's a good. That's a good turnaround. Yeah. Um, and that's using honey in my type of way because I've had your mead and I really, really love it. Now, I, this is a very selfish question. Does it age? Good like, question. Does mead age? So. I would say it does. Uh, not all meads age equally, if that makes sense. So a traditional mead, the ones we talked about before, honey, water, and yeast, they can vary in strength. Typically, a traditional mead is going to be in that 12% range, much like a grape wine. And those actually, I think, do uh, improve slash age um, over time, three to five years. You get kind of that softening. You get a little rounding, much you would like you would in a you know in a good red wine and a good French red or even like a white. Um, when you start to add things like fruits, which we love to do because fruit has great flavor and people like fruity stuff, um, some of the flavor compounds in those fruits will tend to break down a little bit more rapidly. Particularly your delicate fruits, something like a strawberry or a blueberry, probably won't hold up for five years as well as something like a cherry or raspberry or something with a little bit more kick to it. Uh, we typically save about six to 12 bottles of every batch just to have things so that we can revisit them down the line. How's our sorbate working? Are we, are we shelf stable? Do we have things that really hold up well? Um, are they falling off? Do we need to let people know, hey, if you're sitting on that raspberry batch three, you might wanna crack one open. Um, but I think in general, they do age pretty well. So it's kind of like something that I like to stick in my cellar like I do with some nice bottles of red. It's very cool to hear. Are all meads super heavy? Like the word in my brain feels like it's supposed to be like a heavy drink. And that might steer someone like me who prefers lighter beer, like wine, away from mead. Is, is, is mead always a heavy drink? Great question and one that I hear a lot and one that keeps me up at night. Because I don't want everyone to think that mead is a thick sweet cloying over-the-top beverage it certainly can be that is a type of mead that is produced and it's a type of mead that people really enjoy it's a type of mead that at lots of renaissance festivals that's what they serve and so a lot of people that are exposed to mead that way kind of think oh well, all mead tastes like that so what i would say to them does all beer taste like budweiser does all beer taste like a large commercially produced beer that is made with lots of adjunct other than grain and the answer is no uh, we do meads that are sweet, like you would imagine, a little bit more viscous, a little bit more heavy on the mouth. Um, and then we go all the way down to bone dry. So mead is versatile. Mead can fill all those bone dry up to sweet. Um, so I think there's typically a mead for everybody. We have 14 meads on tap. 
usually a mix of a couple dry, lots of semi-sweet, and then some sweet. I feel like I can almost always find something that people are going to enjoy and fits in their wheelhouse. Uh, we talked about uh, a little bit of these obsessions we have with local honeys and how honey can be different. Um, one beautiful thing about varietal honeys and honeys from different places is it's much like a grape variety. If you think about Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon and all the, the hundreds if not thousands of grape varieties and how they taste different, these varietal honeys and the location of where the honey comes from really creates a big difference in how the mead tastes. So there are thousands of different flavors out there in the honey world and we're you know, constantly exploring those. And even the honey we get out of Virginia, which is a wildflower honey, just means a, a variety of nectar sources, lots of tulip poplar and locust, some clover. Um, sometimes we've planted things around our bees, things like vetch and rye. So there is a slight variation in each harvest that we get of honey. So there's a little bit of ebb and flow in the flavor of the mead every time too. I have this really dark, like they call it buckwheat honey that comes out of that um, somebody has bees in Goochland make, and it's just insane. It's like almost... Um, I feel like it has like coffee notes in it. It's so cool. I also brought one home. I was on a bergamot farm in Italy. So I had bees, the bergamot farm. And I have like bergamot bees, honey. And, mm-hmm. and they, there's no bergamot in it. But it has like that like weirdly floral aroma that bergamot has. So I love the whole idea of mead. I think it's just very cool. I am a food person. I'm sure you're surprised to hear this, Bill. Um, what do I pair with mead? So that's another good question, and, and I appreciate it because one of the things as a mead maker that we are constantly trying to do is educate people about this beverage. And if those of us who like to drink, many of us also like to eat, and so we like to eat and drink together. So what goes well? Uh, so for the traditional mead that we do, which is a semi-sweet, it's got a little bit of sweetness to it, I like to pair that with anything that's got spice. So Indian, um, if you're doing like a spicy barbecue, anything with a little bit of a char to it, nice piece of grilled fish that's coming off the grill. Um, the honey, to me, really helps. Uh, it works nicely with heat. Honey is a great antidote to capsaicin, the active compound in peppers. Everybody says, oh, if it's too hot, you know, drink some milk or you know, eat some cheese. Well, that works. But actually, honey is also really effective at breaking down that that super hot stuff. So I think anything spicy or smoky goes with a traditional mead. Um, we do a lot of fruited things, and I think fruited meads work well with salty and sweet. Uh, so a lot of times we'll pair our fruited meads with like an opening course. If you're going to do a nice charcuterie with some nice salty meats and some nice cheeses, some big full-flavored cheeses, uh, we were over up at uh, the New Truckle Cheesemongers um, to do a pouring not too long ago, and they did some fantastic pairings of some of the sweeter meads with some of their cheeses. So meat and cheese, I think, is a great way to go. Um, and then, of course, on the dessert meads, um, you know, pairing those with fruits, pairing those with chocolates for after a meal, a nice, you know, thick piece of chocolate cake with our raspberry chocolate vanilla mead for Valentine's Day. Pretty nice. So wait, did you say raspberry chocolate? Vanilla mead? Yes. Like all of those things together? Absolutely. How does one do that? Well, of course, what we're going for there is a you know chocolate-dipped raspberry kind of to appeal to the Valentine's Day crew. Um, so how do you get chocolate into mead? Well, the most important ingredient in chocolate is the cacao nib. Cacao nibs, you know, they grow on a plant, and they are almost like a coffee bean. I mean, same kind of texture. Um, so we use the nibs, and the nibs go into the mead, and then the, as they soak in there, essentially they release flavor. Um, you typically think of chocolate, that's after butter and sugar and all that stuff have been added. So we're not any, adding any butter or any dairy to our meads, but we are adding the sweetness with, from the honey, and the cacao nibs gives that distinctive uh, chocolate flavor. And, and we source nibs from a couple roasters around the U.S. Most of the nibs are coming from out of the country, um, from Africa, from South America. But each one of those, again, it gives it a slightly different flavor. So one year we had a raspberry chocolate vanilla that was more milk chocolate. One year we had was more of a dark chocolate. So kind of so nice cool. mix. So yeah. cool. So what I'm hearing for you, Scott, is you can have a 
like a very romantic dinner, and instead of a bottle of wine, you could pick up some of Bill's mead. Are you going to let me borrow some of your local honey, or is it like under, lock, a, under lock and key at your he house? He already has the honey I'm in saying, his. I'm saying, like, you know, pair with my cheeses and meats. You are welcome to anything. Thank you. That's all I anything wanted. Anything I have. But I bet you um, Bill has a better collection of local honey than I do. I don't know. You're, you're, I you're do. talking yours it's, up. You I might be better with the local, but I've got a lot of stuff. Like, one of my favorite things to do when traveling anywhere is to bring back honey. So I know it sounds like you do that when you're around Love the state it. of Virginia. Love it. Yep. Um, it's a nice to me. It's a great thing to as a reminder of where you were. Um, so I've got honeys from all over the world. Um, to this day, I've never had any problems with customs with honey. Um, I think honey is one of those things where it, you know fresh fruits or vegetables they don't really like meat stuff like that. Um, one of the meads that I have um, on tap for our anniversary party is called Eight, and it was actually initially made a batch for the Answers Eight Year Anniversary, but it's eight honeys from around the world, and let's see if I can remember from where. Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Italy, Honduras, Hawaii, mm, I've got to six, and You're two other places. Yeah. Some other places. <laughs> yeah, and so to me, that was kind of a cool way to be like, all right, it's an eight-year anniversary. Let's pull eight of these small jars of honey that I've had on my shelf forever. Um, but yeah, it's a memory of those places that I've been, and each of them does have a very distinctive, amazing flavor. So it's pretty cool. What have you learned in eight years of making mead that you didn't know when you started? I mean, I understand there's probably lots, but like, what are the big things? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I've learned is that there is an amazing group of consumers, customers, advocates, supporters out there who really do love mead. Whether they fell in love with Beowulf in high school and got into the whole, you know, Norse mythology and kind of some of the stories that have mead as kind of a primary ingredient, uh, folks that, uh, you know, love food and flavor, um, people from all walks of life, an amazing crew, like the folks that come into our meadery, I am learning from them all the time. I feel like we built you know, a heck of a community. Um, so just there's a lot of interest in Mead and it's a really awesome group of folks and they're helping us kind of introduce it to a broader market. Um, you know, I've learned that when you think you know how to do something really well, bide your time and be <laughs> humble because, you know, in this world of fermentation, there's always something that can throw you for a loop. I mean, there's wild yeast, there's bacteria, there's temperature issues there certainly we all know about supply chain issues now so um you know try not to rest on your laurels i mean you can get pretty good at something and hear a lot of kudos from people and that's great to hear and it's nice to feel that you're doing something right but there are always opportunities to kind of keep your craft you know sh keep your skills sharp and, and be ready to work continue to work hard because there's a lot of competition out there we talked about scott's edition and how it was 10 years ago kind of a uh, somewhat of a wasteland well now i think there's seven or eight breweries there's still you know a couple cideries and there's a meadery so for me to attract the customers we have to do a good job of what we do not only do we have to make a great product but we have to create a nice experience we have to create an enticing place that people when they look in the window feel like hey this is cool let's go check it out and i think we as mead makers have to go a little bit farther even because most people know what craft beer is now a lot of people still don't know what meat is. I feel like more people do, but it's still a little bit of... There's a barrier there. There is. And there's a lot of responsibility on us as the mead makers in Richmond, on the mead makers in Virginia, on mead makers across the U.S., as we get more and more of those to make really good product and help educate people about what it is we do. I'm trying to get the timeline in my head straight. So grandma in Chicago, a lot of mead there. Austin, Texas beekeepers honey there when when at what point in your life did you say i'm dedicating it to mead so the austin experience helped me understand that mead was something that i really enjoyed um, it was something that i was making and sharing with you know the homebrew club with friends with family. and you were in austin working living schooling i was there for graduate school graduate school yeah that was 92 to 94 and you know, I pretty much stopped making homebrew because Austin had a, a vibrant craft beer scene and I had two or three good breweries nearby where I could go get my stuff. So I was making mead because I loved it. People were enjoying drinking it. Um, we moved, I was back in the DC area, living in Northern Virginia after graduate school, still making mead, still kind of loving it and enjoying it and sharing with people and entering contests. We moved to Richmond um, and we had enough land that I could start keeping these again. And that was kind of, I think, a that was an important moment for me. I was like, all right, we've got bees again. We can do our own honey. 
And I kind of felt like, you know, this is, there was a passion there and I really loved it. And I really was kind of looking for something to do on my own. And with the craft scene, kind of that second wave of Richmond craft brewing, um, kind of when we saw like, you know, all these new breweries opening up and we saw that Richmond was real supportive of that, um, as well as food, we thought it's going to work. So you know, I had been doing a lot of IT work, was doing a lot of web work, and I love that. Um, but I really kind of felt the passion, and my wife was extremely supportive of it. And so I would say we moved down here in 07. So probably by 2010, we kind of felt like this is going to be something that we can do. And we just kind of started small, and we've been running with it ever since. So, Like running with it so much that they – Tell me if I get the number right. You have seven. You had seven awards in this most recent Virginia governors. That is correct. We were fortunate enough to be recognized for seven of our meads, two golds, um, and both of the gold medal winners were actually back-to-back winners with gold medals two years in a row. That was the Blue Angel, which is a sizer. It's a blend of apples and honey, 100% sourced from Virginia. And then we take that base mead and we hit it with a little bit of extra apple and extra honey and some uh, apple pie spice that's our apple pie so the, that's a dessert one um and the other one's more of a semi-sweet but we've been making blue angel now i think that was batch nine and that started as a collaboration with blue Bee back when courtney was over in manchester and she was kind of a good mentor to me and she was making amazing cider and i was like hey i need this good apple juice and she was she, no, she does great apples like she's super knowledgeable I mean, how many meaderies are there in the state uh, good question. I think the last meeting I went to, there there actually is hopefully going to be a some sort of a, a formal association of Virginia mead makers, which is kind of cool. I think there's about 15 uh, entities making mead and maybe nine or 10 that just make mead. A lot of the wineries will dabble in mead now that it's becoming a little bit more popular. They've got the right equipment. And uh, so places that are doing historically grape wines are now doing a meat or two a year. So, And you guys have to follow the same regulations that Virginia wineries have to follow, right? Like down to everything. Yeah. So we are classified at the federal level as wine since we are fermenting something other than grain. So cider, grape wine, mead all follow under wine and within the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, we are operating as a farm winery, which essentially we can ferment anything other than grain. And as a farm winery, we have to produce a certain amount of our own fermentables, which is primarily the honey that we're producing. There are some changes going into effect in July, but right now I probably couldn't tell you much about it other than I know that we're pretty much going to be able to exist and operate as we have in the past. Cool. So, That's yeah. nice. That works out great. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, uh, drawing people in off the street, you have to have an inviting tap room. What is it about your tap room that makes it inviting. So I like to describe our tap room as the most intimate tap room in Scott's edition. Um, it's small. Um, we don't have TVs. We like to encourage folks to sit at the bar and meet the person next to them and have a conversation. Um, it's got beautiful woodwork. Uh, both the front and the rear bar are built out of some beautiful reclaimed wood that came out of Pennsylvania. Um, my favorite story is the back bar. The back bar is actually faced with some 400-year-old quarter sawn oak. That oak came out of a church, and when they were pulling the church down, they found all this beautiful wood, and they thought, oh, this is really nice. So they, they saved a lot of it. But when they pulled the floor up, they found a stump that was about three feet across. That was the oak tree that mm. had been sawed down and milled on site to build a church. So that's part of our tap room right now. So I feel like that's kind of a cool little – there's energy from that. It's beautiful. It's warm. It's just – I think it's a very inviting place to go sit. It's not loud. It's typically a place where you can go. Um, we have lots of, I think, first dates there. It's kind of a nice place where you can go and feel comfortable and not have like a loud din of noise and kind of get to know somebody and, you know, enjoy like, you know, that first time together. And then, of course, our, our regulars love to come back and, and spend time with us as well. Now, are you, for the first time visitors, are you manning the bar are you in the back are you doing business stuff what's uh, what's your day like so bill has many hats as you can imagine um small business owners we do what and we great need hair to do. by the way yep. uh well there's, i'm jealous of his hair there's a little bit left i love and, it uh, more He's gray all the time had great hair. yeah so um so i am currently behind the bar tuesday wednesday and thursday and it's actually been pretty cool it's been nice to reconnect with folks Obviously, we are all aware of, you know, the previous three years and some 
strange things that went on. So there was a, a lack of in-person stuff, and I'm more of a people person. So it's been nice to be back behind the bar to see lots of familiar faces and then, of course, to interact with lots of new folks. Um, people really seem to like to talk about mead with me, and, uh, you know, it's what I do for a living. So I'm always happy to, to share what I know, and we get a lot of folks that are making their own mead or have had mead different places and, and want to talk about it. So it's a good place to come and learn more, and certainly we can – Get you a taste of stuff, too. And I would like to know where Blackheath came from. Well, it's pretty funny, and it's p- pretty clever, and I wish it was a little bit more in-depth, but <laughs> when we moved to <laughs> Sounds Richmond... Sounds like a podcast, actually. <laughs> you know what? Here we are. <laughs> when we moved to Richmond, we moved into a house on Blackheath Road, and that's where we kind of started kind of this idea. That's where the honeybees were set up first. It's where we did our Kickstarter. We had a little stable out back where we set up a little place where we made mead. So when we started, of course, to uh, think about names, of course, a million ideas went up on the wall. And at the end of the day, I think Janie, my wife, looked it up online, and there actually is a Blackheath Castle in Ireland. And cool, we both have some Celtic, you know, history in our in our families. Um, Ireland is a big place for mead, so we were like, "Hey, this works. Let's do it." So that's where it comes from. I love it. Now I have one more question: Do you name your hives or any of the bees? Good question. It's three million bees. You know, name the bees. Why, why, well, why wouldn't you name That's them? That's three million of them. Well, 2.6. Yes. Uh, okay, so we're probably not naming individual bees, but you said you have 60 hives. Do you yeah. ever name the hives? No, we haven't, and that's a good idea. But I like wineries. Have enough names for my t- fermentation tanks. Fair. We named all those after characters from the Big Lebowski. So let me work on that and see what I can get back to you. Well, you know how wineries have like AVAs or like wineries that like you know your whatever came from this winery and this winery and then they mix them together. I don't know. I, you know, like you have. This we can do fish songs. We can do fish songs. Hey, that could work. That's enough. Yeah, I don't know if Ocelot would like that. They're all fish related, but I'm sure Adrian wouldn't mind if we decided to use. I think fish has enough songs that we can share. <laughs> oh, and if they're long enough, you could just get some lyrics. There you go. <laughs> what kind of music are you playing over the, uh, the PA So um, we typically have uh, two or three people that are in the tap room throughout the week, and I kind of leave that up to the bartenders. Um, so when I'm there, it's typically going to be, uh, we like some jam bands in there. So, <laughs> Oh, um, Scott. So oh, really? Be, tell me more. There's probably going to be some Grateful Dead. There's going to be some fish. Um, there might it be sounds a like your type of place. Stuff. Yeah. Um, but you never know. I mean, there could be some ween. There could be, uh, some seventies rock. There could be some cosmic country. Uh, there could be some. Is that a country. genre? Cosmic Country? Country? Is that a genre? It is, yeah. Really? Yeah. I know nothing. Yeah. I think the Birds would probably be the first band that might have been described as Cosmic Country back in the 70s, but then you go through, you know, it's still a thing. Daniel Donato, who was just here in Richmond playing a show, who's a Nashville guy, he's also... uh, Considered Cosmic cosmic. Country? Yeah. Um, that's That's a name for a drink. Uh, live music at your at your uh, so live space. music is definitely something that is near and dear to our hearts. Um, we were fortunate to have a neighbor across the way, across the alley, that had a beautiful loading dock that kind of made a really nice makeshift stage. Uh, well, the I guess the pros and the cons of Scott's edition. Uh, the pros we've talked about: great place to be, a lot of foot traffic kind of a happening neighborhood cons is lots of construction the block next to us has all been sold and, and sometime in the next couple months they're going to start demolishing that whole block mm. so we are going to lose our loading dock but in the short term we do still plan to kick some music out up there and also looking at a small stage in our outdoor seating area as well so yeah working with local musicians we've had some amazing talent come through there lots of folks that you know now are kind of like you know hitting it big justin golden one of my favorites you know he used to play shows with us and now he's you know on to bigger and better things um but we do plan on doing some stuff now that the weather i should be saying it now that the weather has warmed up but it feels like it's been warm it's for months 77 now. degrees yeah. outside so, what yeah monday was in the 40s right yeah welcome to richmond so it's been an interesting winter weather wise but um yeah we do hope to have some some more live music up there over the next few months until we get shut down by the construction so I had a friend, this is an interesting thing, I don't know if this is something that you do, I have a friend that mixes the sweet mead you were talking about with just plain sparkling water to make a sparkling mead. Um, is that something that you would suggest? Well, I would not only suggest it, but I'd, I'd do it too. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> so um, 2023, I have declared the year of 
mead and one of my focuses is mead and cocktail so what you described to me is more like a mead spritzer, spritzer and i love that yeah so you know a sweet mead even a semi-sweet mead with a little splash of soda a couple ice cubes squeeze a lemon or lime delicious refreshing you can stretch a 375 bottle out and get three or four drinks out of that it's wonderful but i've always felt that a lot of our sweet meads that have you know like that raspberry chocolate vanilla what better than that as a substitute for a simple syrup and a cocktail so we've been working to get with some of the local bartenders in town and kind of introduce them to what these meads can do because i kind of feel like if i was a mixologist which i'm not um, i do like to mix a drink now and again but why not a smoked pineapple toasted coconut mead with rum and some other thing and sure. a shaker and a you know a little umbrella in it i mean so you know tiki drink right there absolutely mm-hmm. so i think mead is versatile enough and certainly the sweeter dessert style meads are you know strong enough to hold their own in a cocktail or in a spritzer or in another beverage so yeah okay cool well this will come out this monday which Correct. will miss your anniversary so because we'll miss it, will you tell us what we missed and then what can we come get on Tuesday to pretend like we're still celebrating with you? Absolutely. Well, we um, plan on continuing that celebration for as long as we can because, you know, we didn't get a five. We were literally busting our butts to get ready for the five-year anniversary, which, of course, was March of 2020. Um, So we didn't do that one. We didn't do six and we didn't do seven. So this is kind of like three anniversaries wrapped up into one. So we're going to try and stretch it out as much as possible. Uh, What we're doing for the anniversary on Saturday is kind of pulling some stuff out of the vaults, out of the out of the cellar. So we've got some meads from 2020. We've got a mead from 2021. We've got one from 2022. And then we're doing one special one just for that, as well as four new releases. So um, hopefully some of those meads will sit around. I mean, part well, of we don't want to them to sell sit out. around. You want, yeah. To, yeah, you want I them would to love to sell out on, mm. on Saturday. Um, but Cross definitely the new releases, which we've kind of been holding for this, are large enough volumes that those ought to be around for a little while. We've got a new batch of our El Machete, which is one of my favorites. We smoke pineapples up at ZZQ. Um, been working with them to do a couple batches. We do toasted coconut. It's kind of our riff on a pina colada. So it's sweet. It's got really good, beautiful pineapple character, a little bit of toasted coconut. Then we also do a spicy version of that. We do three different chilies in it. So it's got a nice kind of heat and sweet. Um, so those ought to be around for a while. And then we've got a new batch of our end of the weight, which is a project that started with the veil uh, when they wanted to do some barrel aged honey. So we supplied the honey. They supplied the barrels. We got a lot of that barrel aged honey. So it's a fermented uh, bourbon barrel aged honey with vanilla beans. So that'll be available so for cool. a while as well. That's, that's the one. Yeah. I have one newbie dumb question. One la- I have many newbie dumb questions. I have one last newbie <laughs> dumb newbie, question. I see what you did there. I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when you order a mead, is it like a beer, like a 12 or 16 ounce, or is it like a wine, like a six, like a six ounce? So uh, I would be uh, irresponsible, I guess, to serve somebody a 12 ounce glass of mead, because we are talking about 12, 12% meads here. So typically our meads are served as a four ounce pour. It's going to be a, a glass, but we also offer flights and we do four two ounce pours. Flights are nice, as we've talked about. If it's something new, it's a nice way for somebody to come in and try four different things. You come in with two people, you can try eight. That's almost all of the meads that we have on tap. Find one that you like, and then you've got something that you can sip a glass of or maybe even take a bottle home. So, yes, um, our pours are typically smaller than a beer just because of the ABV. So, smaller than the beer and right in the wheelhouse of the wine. Yeah. You know, everything's small live. and the big now. It's, just think of it as a nice, good glass. You, you really could truly have three good pours at the meadery and feel lovely and go home. Like a nice walk around Scott's edition. <laughs> Take a big yeah. stroll, enjoy your nice buzz. You're listening to Roby Martin, Scott Wise, and Bill Cavender from Blackheath Meadery. I really wish we had more time to talk to Bill about fish, but you were rushing us through that portion of the interview. I don't appreciate that. That is such horse Fish, not horse. Yeah. Fish. No, I'm, or fish. No. Roby, the world wants to know. Okay. What was your best bite since we last spoke? When on was the last podcast? time you went to Marie's? When was the last time I went to Mary? Oh, Mary Angela's. Yes. Oh, sorry, it's been quite some time, but it, it was my go-to pizza place for a very go. long time. You gotta go. I just had seriously 
I forget how. Mary A's. Mary Jeez. A's. Come I was on. Like, I thought it was a French restaurant. <laughs> no. I was like, what's Mary A's? Mary Angela's. It's so good. It's so. It is so good. It's such. It really is like a Richmond local pizza. Like, it's really like our institution of pizza. For how long has Mary A's been around? I mean, I remember it from. Forever. Yeah, right? Mm hmm. Did you have pizza? Yeah, we got two. You, should, you can only get extra larges at Mary Angela's. Sure. It's like the rule. So we got one white and one red. And both of them, I would like you to say, we got them and they're already gone. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Sounds like a great that day. That is the best bite. Love it. <laughs> did you hear the news, which I know you did, about Max's on Broad? Yes. I, what I didn't know, Scott, is that Liz Kincaid owns the entirety of the RVA Hospitality alone now i didn't realize that francis had exited the restaurant industry i mean obviously good luck to her she would, uh, was hard hard work um she and ted built a wonderful wonderful legacy um but yeah max's is changing and i love that she's changing with the neighborhood so what does that mean to you exactly i mean she, she sort of outlined it in the articles that were written about it but she said the neighborhood is not what it was when max's opened 10 years ago. Right. So from your perspective of going out to eat in that part of town, what is that neighborhood? Frankly, I think it means better food at Max's, if you really want my opinion. I think it was heavy food. I think it has changed. I think it has changed from like the, it started out as like Belgian food, I guess, like with French influences, something similar to that. I remember having like all sorts of that type of stuff. I wrote the review for it in style when it opened. Was it an actual review? It was an actual review. Stuff was good and stuff was bad. Um, or actually may have all been... Anyway, I haven't read it. Anyway, they changed the menu to something else. And there's like a raw bar. I just don't think it fits in with that area. I think that area wants a little bit more lively, a little bit more innovative, a little bit... Excuse, a little bit younger. Yeah. Miss B's Juice Bar moving into, or so the owner of Miss B's Juice Bar opening up a new restaurant where Cezanne used to be. Any thoughts on that? I think that juice is good. I have not been to Mrs. B's and I should go and I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's I really all I have to I say. I don't think she's opening up a juice bar there. I believe she's opening up a restaurant, Hive Bar and Grill. I'm for it. Pro Miss B. Pro Miss B. Love it. Um, and how about one more? Yep, because I'm doing terrible with the, I did terrible with the last one. Our friend Trey. Trey. With Soul Taco. Right. Walk this way. Oh, you jumped the gun on me. I That's can my do job. It. I take the restaurants. <laughs> no, I get to say yes. Walk this way. Yeah, I'm stoked about that. Um, I think that it could be really, really fun. I mean, I don't know how many places that you actually get to see somebody using a walk to cook your food, and I think that might be something you're going to be able to see here. I mean, you know what's happening in the kitchen. You can probably see it through the window at Beijing and Grove, but like, I'm stoked. I'm really, really stoked. And this is where the Switch pop-up bar used to be. I never went to the Switch pop-up bar. You didn't have to. Okay. Why is that? I don't know, because it never stayed the same. It always switched. This episode of Eat It It Virginia? (laughs) This episode of Eat It (laughs) Virginia? No! Oh, God, no.